or anything, we'll send an email out later this week. Uh, but just bring anything, it always works out. We all always have uh, perfect variety. So just bring uh, a breakfast item to share with the, uh, with the class. And we'll have some tables set up here, and um, it'll just be a good informal time of, uh, of eating. Um, so, uh, but we will send out a confirmation email later this, this week as well. Speaking of uh, uh, those joining our class, we also have Deborah and um, Mary's parents with us and brothers. So good to see you guys. You're here as well. So welcome. So if you would turn with me to John chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be finishing this section in the Gospel of John, um, verses 1 through 15 are, uh, are a section, and um, we will conclude the rest of chapter 3 uh, in February sometime, and uh, we get back from, from China. But yes, Kathleen? Um, can I remind you about the question that I brought? Yes, yes, and I remembered that as I was preparing, and... Um, I'm gonna to try to see if I can answer it, and uh, but we might have to uh, might have to wait, okay? Because because actually that that question will get answered as we move through the Gospel of John. Uh, but I have not forgotten about about that. It's good. It's a very good, helpful question for sure. So this morning we're gonna finish chapter three, uh, verses fourteen through fifteen. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to do a little bit of review. Where have we been? Uh, what do we mean when we talk about the new birth? Um, and this is how, I, uh, how I'm going to summarize it in this one sentence, and then we will unpack uh, the sentence here to get started. So what is the new birth that we've been talking about? The new birth is the creation of new life in the soul of man through the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus by faith. All right, so there's a lot packed in there. The new birth is the creation of new life in the soul of man, and it happens through the Holy Spirit. How does he give life? By uniting us to Jesus by faith. So let me unpack that a little bit for us, and then we will dive into verses 14 through 15. And the first thing we've noted is that Jesus is the source of, of new life. Jesus is the source of this new creation life that we must experience <laughs> if we are to enter the kingdom. In verse 5, you can see Jesus defines what it means to be born from above, born again. He defines it by being born of water and spirit. So what does it mean to be born from above? It means to be born from water and spirit. Well, what does that mean? We said it is the creation of an entirely new nature. It's one that's no longer defiled by the guilt of sin. It's washed with water. It's purified. It's cleansed. And it's the entire transformation of one's nature. It is now filled with the Spirit. It has been changed to be in line with God at the desire level, on the thought level, on the intention level. And both of these come from Christ. We saw John proclaim that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He deals with our guilt problem. He washes us. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just forgive us and let us continue in our rebellious nature. He transforms our nature, our hearts, to give us new desires, new affections, and a new will. He writes the law of God on our hearts, is what Ezekiel tells us. 
Apart from this new nature, this new life, we remain under the guilt of our sin and the dominion of our sin. We remain defiled by sin and enslaved to sin, apart from this new birth. And therefore, we remain under the wrath of God and willful children of the devil, is what John calls us. We must be born again. The new birth is not a turning over of a new leaf. It is a fundamental change of one's entire nature. And this life is in Jesus, right? John 1, 4. In him was what? In him was life. And life was the life. This life is in Christ. Number two. Part of our condition of spiritual deadness includes an inability to recognize our spiritual condition. And it includes an inability to receive Jesus as this life. So yes, we need Jesus for this life, but part of our deadness includes we're not even able to receive him as this life that he offers to us. And this is clearly seen in Nicodemus. Nicodemus intellectually gets what Jesus is saying, but he stiff arms this truth that he is this bad, that he really needs this new birth. The deadness of Nicodemus is seen that he completely missed this truth all through the Old Testament. The deadness of Nicodemus is seen that he's blind to his own spiritual condition. And his deadness is seen in his unbelief in Jesus as the source of this new birth. And even Jesus' teaching that he must be born. Nicodemus is characterized by darkness. And John 1.5 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is what? It cannot, is unable to grasp it. So that's number two. Man cannot receive Christ as this life. He is that life, but man is unable to receive him as such. Number three. While the Gospel of John insists over and over that the life is in the Son, it also says that it is the Spirit who does what? Who gives life. It's the Spirit who gives life. And so the question is, is... Is it the Spirit who gives life, or is it the Son who gives life? And what's the answer? The answer is, is yes, it is. It's the Son who ultimately gives life, but the Spirit gives life how? By uniting us to the Son, just as a, a branch is united to a life-giving vine. And the question now is, how does the Spirit do that? And that's what we talked about last week. How does the Spirit unite us to Christ such that we get this life as a world? And he does it by what? By creating and enabling faith. The essence of faith, we've said from day one, is beholding the glory of Christ. It's light. It's shining. And we're blind to it. The role of the Spirit is to glorify Christ all through the Gospel of John. How does he do it? By opening eyes to the glory and the reality and the truth of who he is. That's his job. And that's what the Spirit does. That's how the Spirit gives life. And number four, this life is received and experienced in the soul by faith. These points are not on your outline. I'm sorry, I didn't clear up on that. I'm just summarizing where we've been. This life is experienced and received in the soul by, by faith. John 3.36, look over at the very end of John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. How do you get this life? By faith. 
And this is the point we're going to unpack this morning in verses 14 through 15. This Ezekiel 36 kind of life, this transformed nature, comes through Christ by faith. Before we unpack these verses this morning, I just want us to think a little bit more carefully about this relationship between faith and the new birth. How do these two things relate to one another? Well, I say faith is like breathing. Faith is like the receiving of the oxygen of life into our souls. That's what faith is like. But faith is also the result of the Spirit's life-giving work in my soul. There's no breathing where there's not first life. Yes, breathing is the essential means we receive life, but there's to be life first before you breathe. And so the point that we've been trying to stress is that the new birth is much more than the instantaneous giving of, of, of life, the awakening of the soul. It's also my faith which receives life from Christ. Or flipping around, the new birth isn't just my receiving life from Christ. It's also the awakening of the Spirit. It includes all of this. It's this whole process is what John means by the new birth. So let me defend this to you really quickly. Look over at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. The new birth is not just receiving this eternal life from Christ. It is this producing of faith. Faith, in other words, is the result, ultimately, of the new birth. Not the cause, ultimately, of the new birth. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. First John 5, 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born from God. Now look at the tenses. The verb tenses are very important here. Everyone who believes, present tense, right now is believing that Jesus is the Christ. What does it say? Will be born from God? No. What does it say? Has been born from God. That is very significant. In other words, our believing is ultimately and decisively the result of God giving us the new birth. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's the means whereby we receive eternal life, but ultimately the new birth caused and was not caused by our faith. John says everyone who is believing in Jesus has already been born from God. And we could go over to 1 Peter. I'm going to save us uh, some time. We're not going to do that in your free time. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. It says the same thing, the same process. And throughout the scripture, we read that our faith, as important as it is, there is no saving life without faith. Ultimately, that is the result of God's quickening, awakening, alivening work in our souls. Got a couple minutes here. I just want to hand out a few texts. You look them up, and I want, I want us to hear it. So not just from John now. Listen to some other biblical authors that, that say the same thing. Who can get 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26? All right, Paul. Um, Philippians 1, 29. All right, I'll let uh, Kathleen. Acts 5, 31. All right, and then could do a number of them. Acts 4, 16, 14. How about that one? 16, 14. Anyone? Mr. Miller. Okay. All right, so let's do these quickly. But, but just, just listen. Like this theme is, I could have picked a number of other texts. Um, it's all through the Bible. 
2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Instructing his opponents with gentleness, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Sounds like John. Slaves of the devil. God may grant them repentance. That's God's work. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer from him. It's been given to you not only to believe in him. Hear that? It's been given to you to believe in him. And also it's been given to you to suffer. Acts 5.31 Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance. Repentance, faith, obviously being two sides of one coin. Acts 16.14 One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Ithyra, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We go to a number of other places where we read that our faith, as essential as it is, there is no new life without it. But it is ultimately and decisively the result of God's begetting work in our hearts. So let me say it one more way before we move on. The relationship between faith and the new birth is not one of timing, but of cause and effect. Okay? There's never a time a person believes in which he is not said to have been born again. And likewise, there's never a time in the scriptures where a person said to be born again where he is not also believing. They're, they're simultaneous. They're, they're instantaneous together, always. No sooner is a baby born than it begins to breathe. No sooner do you strike a match than there's heat. No sooner is one born again than there is faith. They're, they're never separated in the Bible. John Piper says, Your act of believing and God's act of begetting are simultaneous. He does the begetting and you do the believing in the same instant. So what we're saying is not that they're different as to timing, but they're different as to cause and effect. We've got to go one step further. The relationship is that our faith is ultimately the consequence, not the cause of our new birth. Again, Piper says, his doing is the decisive cause of your doing. His begetting is the decisive cause of your believing. So why is this important? You say, Michael, it just sounds like we're trying to split theological hairs here, right? Like, this is just something for a seminary classroom, right? It's not. It's very important. Um, it's important, number one, because John emphasizes these things. And if John emphasizes them, we should. But why, um, specifically, are they important to us? It's important so that we don't misunderstand this doctrine of the new birth by thinking that someone could possess the new birth, regeneration, and not possess faith. Many people out there teach this. Roman Catholicism and a number of other denominations say you sprinkle water on a baby and he is regenerated, and at some point later down the road he will come to faith. That is unbiblical. That's not in the Bible. It's important so we would see how gloriously essential our faith is. Our faith isn't second 
place. It's not unconsequential. It is the means whereby we receive eternal life. And it is created by God's working. And it's important so that we would recognize what was behind our act of believing. God did that. You were dead in your sins. And God made you magnify the grace of God. The point here is that we would see, yes, I believe, but where did that come from? It came from grace. God did that. So this is how I think John wants us to think about the new birth. It's the creation of new life in the soul of man through the Spirit who unites us to Jesus by faith. That's the new birth. And if you're a believer in here, you've experienced that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. So we're going to finish John chapter 14 and 15, uh, verses 14 to 15, John 3 this morning. Look in your outline. We are under major point number three. Jesus is the ultimate source of revelation and eternal life. In verse 10, Jesus declares that Nicodemus has failed to believe this truth that pervades the Old Testament. Then verses 11 to 13, Jesus shows that Nicodemus also rejects the words of uh, even greater witness, the Son of Man who's come from God himself. And now in verses 14 to 15, Jesus will declare that he's not just a source of revelation. He's not just a teacher. He's also the source of eternal life that must be received and believed upon. So under major point three, small point C, we get Nicodemus's and everybody's need to look to Jesus as the source of eternal life. So these verses are going to teach us specifically how we experience, how we receive the new birth. What do we do in the new birth? How does Christ offer it? What is so significant about faith? Why faith of all things? Why not something else? How do I know that I have faith? What is faith? All that is going to be addressed to us here in these two verses. Yes, it's caused by the Spirit. Nevertheless, it is essential. It's the way we're involved in the new birth. It is our birth. It's how we act out this miracle called regeneration. We believe. So before we consider this, this example that, that Jesus gives, let's, well, first let's read it. Go, go, go to John. I'm still in 1 John. Flip over to John 3. Look at verse 14. Let's read it here. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So look there at that, that, that phrase, the Son of Man must be lifted up. This tells us that the uplifted Son of Man implies Jesus' cross, and exaltation. So let's think about this, this, this phrase here, and then we'll think a little bit more about his example that he gives. The Son of Man must be lifted up. We've already talked about the Son of Man a little. He's a prophesied end-time figure from Daniel 7. Um, and Jesus usually refers to himself as the Son of Man, not the Messiah, because Messiah carries all this extra political baggage that people hear Messiah, they immediately think he's like Judas Maccabeus. He's going to liberate us from our political enemies. And Jesus uses this title because he's able to apply his own significance to it. No, I, I am the Messiah, but I'm not that kind of Messiah. I'm a different one. 
I'm the Son of Man. And throughout John, he is defining just what this Son of Man is. We saw it back in chapter 151. He says, I'm like Jacob's ladder. I'm that final access point between God and man. I'm the new temple, the new Bethel. The previous verse, chapter 3, verse 13, he said, I'm the Son of Man, meaning I'm the ultimate and final source of revelation from God to man. And now Jesus says in verse 14 that he's the Son of Man because he is the one who would bring God's promises of salvation ultimately to pass for mankind. But it wouldn't be as a conquering Messiah, but as a suffering servant. So how do I know he's talking about his cross here? He says he must be lifted up. Well, John talks about, actually Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John several places. Look at chapter 8 with me. Flip over to chapter 8. This is a favorite phrase of Jesus in the Gospel of John for his crucifixion. He must be lifted up, refers to his crucifixion. Chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. It's going to happen. He's going to be lifted up. Flip over to chapter 12. Very clear here. Chapter 12, verse 32. Twelve thirty-two. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. There it is. What does he mean by being lifted up? He said this to to show what kind of death he's going to die by. It's going to be by crucifixion. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And then Jesus Jesus goes on. So being lifted up implies his crucifixion, but it's a strange terminology. Why this terminology, being lifted up? Well, it's because it not only implies his crucifixion, but again, it's the way John loves double meanings. It also implies his exaltation. The exaltation and the glory of Christ is inseparably tied to his crucifixion. It would be through his crucifixion that he would return to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, chapter 17. And it's through the crucifixion that John 1.14 is fulfilled. What does John 1.14 say? And we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. The glory of God the glory of Christ is put on maximum exposure in the cross. It is in the cross that Christ reveals the glory of his grace more clearly than anywhere else. God's glory is displayed not merely in his judgment, not merely in his words, not simply in his signs, although all of those things reveal God's glory. God's glory is put on maximum disclosure through the crucifixion of the Son of God for guilty sinners. That's why Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's what he's talking about. So go back to John chapter 3. Yes. Yes. 
It's just, I know I'd rather forget who it was, but it talked about how scandalous that idea would be in that time. Yeah. How the cross, we view it because we're so familiar with hearing the cross, the cross. Yep. Uh, but in that time, it would be like the electric chair, yep. which is only reserved for the worst criminals. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was not a glorious uh, uh, device. It was a device designed for torture. Yep. And yep. how scandalous that is. Yep. But but how ironic that God chose that. Yeah. It was the the death of a slave, death of a traitor. Yeah. Um, the Roman citizens didn't get the cross. They they got something else. It was the worst of the worst. Yeah. God, very God. You just go back to the prologue now. I think this is the Creator, the one eternally at the bosom of the Father, um, taking the cross. Not because he deserved it, not because he flipped, messed up. Because of my sin. And we're going to see that exactly here in this passage. It's glory. Look at the second point. This uplifted Son of Man is God's appointed means, means for salvation. So the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross, revealing his glory. But Jesus says that it's like the way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. This is a very familiar story, but I invite your attention to it. It's in Numbers chapter 21. Flip over there. Numbers chapter 21. Refresh our memory. What was going on there? Numbers 21. Verse 4. I'll just read it really quickly. <clears throat> Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if anyone was bitten by a serpent, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up. So I want to unpack this a little bit for us. The people of Israel here are under God's judgment and curses for their rebellion. Their rebellion means death, and death through poisonous snakes. So it's terrible. Johnny, can you imagine sleeping in your tent and there are poisonous snakes everywhere? And it's terrifying. The next thing to note here, though, is that God, the Lord, is the one who provides the salvation in remedy from his own judgment. But how? God would do it by commanding Moses to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, holding it high above the, the camp as the way, as the provision for the people to heal them from his own judgment, from his own curses. In verse 14 in John, says, In a similar way, God has provided salvation for those under his wrath. The copper snake was to give physical life to the people of Israel. And the Son of God lifted up is to give spiritual life. This is God's appointed means for salvation. But, but there's some differences here. Okay, can, can you point them out? What are the differences between the copper snake lifted up and Christ being lifted up? 
What would it be? A copper snake. It's not an image of God. Okay, yep. So, yes, that's, a, that's a big one. That's a big one, yep. A copper snake gave physical, mm-hmm. Christ gave spiritual. Yep, excellent, good, yep. I think the other thing to, to point out is that it had no power in itself to cure the people, right? It was a symbol of God's provision. It directed people's eyes to God's provision. So when they looked at the snake, they weren't trusted in this piece of metal. They were trusting in God who had provided this. But the difference between Christ and this copper snake is what? Is that Christ himself actually accomplishes. So our, the, the object of faith is Christ. So the copper snake pointed the eyes beyond to the Lord. Christ is the one who actually accomplishes our salvation. He has power in himself by what he has he's done. Yeah. Is that why they use that symbol with hospitals and stuff? The mm-hmm. It's actually not. That that's connected to, to Greek, Greek mythology, actually. But we won't <coughs> we'll go into that. But that's a good question. So. Um, well, look at number three, and this is really what we've been building up to and really what I want to make the, the focus of our attention. we just got a couple minutes left. So he's not only the provision, he is also the object of saving faith. Now, now, now look at verse 8, 21 verse 8 in Numbers. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. What did John 3.15 say? He said, if everyone who believes has eternal life. Listen to the parallels between these two verses. Everyone who is bitten, and in John 15, everyone. Numbers 21, when he sees it, John 3.15, when he believes in him, and finally he shall live, John 3.15, he will have eternal life. In other words, the example that Jesus gives is not only comparing how he's lifted up with how the serpent was lifted up. It's also comparing how you receive life is the same. Why did God tell Moses to make this serpent and put it on a pole? It wasn't because God needed some help. Why didn't God just cure everybody? It's because he's teaching Israel. He's teaching us about the way that he gives salvation. And it is glorious. So let's, let's just unpack these one by one. The first we get an open invitation. Notice the promise is held out to as many as were bitten. The provision of this snake was not for the good and righteous, but to those who were infected with the consequences of their rebellion. The promise of grace was made to the rebels themselves. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly. The saints trustworthy and worth deserving of full acceptance that Christ came to the world to save sinners. So who qualifies for the work of God? It's not the good and righteous. It is the ungodly. Isn't that you? Ungodly? Ungodly in your thoughts? Ungodly in your actions? Ungodly in your desires? But there's good news there. Those are the people that qualify for the work of God. It's not those who could do a pretty good job cleaning up their life. It's not those who, like Nicodemus, who think, I can fix this by, 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 by my law keeping. It is those who have despaired of any hope in themselves, who are infected with the venom of sin and the consequences of their sin, stained by guilt and enslaved to sin. 
that's whom the promise was held out to. Yeah, those, those people are dead. Yeah. Getting, they have no hope. I yeah. think of Paul getting bit by the snake on Crete. I mean, Crete yeah. just looking until he's dead. Yep. We're just waiting for him to actually die. That, yeah. That's a it is. It is. And if you've heard the stories of Brian Hoffman about the Black Mambas, that that crowd of people, I mean, you got you got hours, maybe. Um, and it's yeah, it's severe. No hope, and that's exactly what we are. And the point is, that's who is held up to. No hope, infected, dying, guilty. It's good news. It's good news that you're ungodly. He came for those kind of people. But next, look at the simple means. It says, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it. And John 3.15 says, every believer in him. God provided this way in order to teach Israel that salvation is outside of them. And the way to access it is by the look of faith. This word in Hebrew isn't just like a look, like a passing glance, like, yeah, I see it and I move on. The idea is, a gaze, a staring at. It is a looking. There, there's this copper snake, and God said my salvation is there, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to look, and look, and look, because I know that's my only hope. I'm staring at it. I'm gazing at it with the look of faith. And in the same way, you're called to believe in Jesus. That's what faith is. What is faith? Faith is a looking outside of myself. It's a looking beyond myself. It is a looking away from myself to my only hope that's provided in Christ. So why faith of all things? It's because faith is an act of pure receiving. Faith comes to Christ with empty hands, being infected with the venom of the vipers. I have no hope, and I come with empty hands. Faith begins with the recognition of my helpless condition. Faith is the hand that receives. It's the mouth that eats. It's the lungs that breathe in. Faith receives, it receives, it receives, it doesn't give. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It comes to Jesus, it hears Christ's promise, and then it expects him to do it. That's it. You say it sounds like presumption, but it's not, because he's invited. You come and you look. I love this example from, from Spurgeon. I've got just a couple minutes, let me read it here to you stuck with me for many years. It's so helpful of what faith is. He said, sometimes faith is little more than a simple clinging to Christ. A sense of dependence and a willingness so to depend. When you are down at the seaside and you see limpets sticking to the rock, you walk with a soft tread to the rock, you strike the mollusk a rapid blow with your walking stick and off he comes. Try the next limpet in that way. You've given him warning. He heard the blow with which you struck his neighbor, and he clings with all his might. You will never get him off, not you. Strike, and strike again, but you may as soon break the rock. Our friend, the limpet, does not know much, but he clings. He's not acquainted with the geological formation of the rock, but he clings. He can cling, and he has found something to cling to. This is all his stock of knowledge, and he uses it for his security and salvation. It is the limpet's life to cling to the rock, and it's the sinner's life to cling to Jesus. Thousands of God's people have no more faith than this. 
They know enough to cling to Jesus with all their heart and soul, and this suffices for present peace and eternal security. Jesus Christ is to them a Savior, strong and mighty, a rock, immovable and immutable. They cling to him for dear life, and their clinging saves them. Reader, cannot you cling? Do so at once. What is faith? So often, and man, I struggled with this for so many years. My focus was on my faith. Am I believing? Well, as long as I'm looking at my faith, where's my faith? My faith is in my faith, and that's not faith. Faith is a forgetfulness of self, a turning. I have nothing. I'm infected with venom. My only hope is in him. I turn to him. He promised it, and I expect him to do it for me. God said salvation is there, and I expect it. I cling, and I cling, and I cling because I'm unworthy. I'm infected, and I'm ungodly, and he made a promise to me. And if you do that, guess what? You've been born again already. The, un- the natural person does not do that. And it is the way you experience eternal life. Finally, we get the certain promise. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Every believer in him shall have eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life in John is much more than never-ending life, although it obviously is that. Eternal life is a kind of life. It's the kind of life that will be experienced in the age to come. But guess what? You can experience now. It's exactly what we saw. Washing of water in the renewal of the Spirit. New life now comes through Christ. Only those who experience this eternal life now by faith will experience it in the age to come. And it comes from faith. And where does that come from? It comes from the mysterious wind of the Spirit who gives life to whomever he wishes. So that's the new birth. It's glorious. We need it. And if you're trusting Christ, you've experienced it. <laughs> So we're, we're out of time. It is 10.15. I got some implications on the back of your page. But first, any questions, comments, any thoughts that, that you have on this before we wrap it up? Yes? I have knowledge, but I don't believe. I have religion, but not relationship. And as you said, I am spiritually blind and spiritually dead. So please pray that I will experience because I became saved at a very young age and I have lost count of how many times I have rededicated my life to the Lord but I, I just don't know so mm-hmm. just pray for me that I can experience the yeah. new birth because I do not like the mess that I've gotten myself in but I just don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I uh, relate very well with you because for many years and I tell you I still show from time to time man am I alive do I have this and the, fo- the, the, the point always comes to your life is in realizing you don't have any hope. That's a good place to be. I, I have nothing. I am ungodly. I am infected. And so what's my hope? It's not that my faith is big enough. My faith is strong enough. Spurgeon says you'll never find hope and happiness by looking within. The devil always tells you your, your faith isn't enough. You don't repent enough. You don't have the joy of God's children. It's by looking away, by looking at those have been words I've gone to over and over again. Look to him. Any any thoughts? Any or, yes, Mr. Uh, those Israelites were just as dead before yeah. the snake was sent. It's true. They just were on a slower timeline. But the fundamental problem was they didn't realize it. They just wanted to 
good. And not believe God yeah. that He had something better. Exactly. They're just as dead. Yeah. And it was a grace mm. that He gave them an acute awareness that they were going to die now. Yeah. That's great. And that's a grace from God. It was to yeah. say you you don't have any hope. Yeah. You didn't have any hope before. I'm feeding you on water, and you could die of starvation or lack or lack of water. Yeah. But you're going to die out here apart from my provision. So he just accelerated the timeline, and that was kindness. That's excellent. Excellent. Yeah. His judgment is his grace. Yeah. We all need that. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's okay. That's God's grace in our lives. Mm-hmm. We desperately need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good. Mike, I yes. you were saying, I'm just uh, encouraged that, you know, God's grace doesn't depend on my effort. Mm-hmm. On days where I feel like I'm, I've done well, or, or on days where I feel like I'm distant from him, I'm no more distant, um, yeah. no better in his standing because he said if you're in Christ, you're holy and blameless and above reproach, yeah. Colossians 1. Even if you don't feel because I often don't it's feel amazing. Amazing. Exactly, it's not based on our feelings. Uh, yeah. so good. It's good. That's uh, I'm point three and four. Um, live out these realities every day. You've been born again. But that doesn't, you, you live out the reality of your birth, your physical birth every day. Why? Because you're believing, right? I mean, you're, you're living, you're breathing, you're doing life. And that's the point. We live in light of our new birth every day. How we experience it. We experience it by 1 John 2, 1, my brothers and sisters. I'd have it. You don't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. Why? Because you're dependent on so depend, 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 depend. Look away, and, uh, and he'll do it. So. Let me let me pray. Let me do this. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. We have nothing. Thank you for opening our eyes to him. As you bless us, you prepare us for the service to come. And uh, we thank you, in Jesus. Name.